Yeah, this morning we are just uh, dipping back into our series uh, in First Corinthians. Um, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've been spending time looking at the, the title of this series being Grace Changes Everything. So it's really God's grace as we've been looking at uh, through the table and as we've sang of God's grace. It really points to this reality that it's all of God uh, and not of us. Uh, and we're taking time to look at this series together because we more and more want to be a church that truly understands the beauty of the gospel. So we really do connect and we really do understand what the gospel means. And we will do that more and more when we recognise that it's only grace. It's only the grace of God that enables us to be in a right relationship with God. So as we understand the gospel, we understand it more and more when we come to terms with the fact that grace is at the heart of the gospel. God is the one who changes us. God is the one who renews us. God is the one who gifts us his Holy Spirit so, so that we can live faithfully for him. Our salvation is not from ourselves, but God's work for us. And this is why Paul says at the start of this letter in 1 Corinthians 1 and verses 4 to 9. And I think it's up on the screen, Cal. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Amen? Amen. You were called by him into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, for Paul, their outward evidence pointed towards an inward grace. And for us, the outward evidence of our lives points towards what's really happening inside, whether or not God is at work in our lives. And it's something that Paul gets at in our passage this morning. Um, just to give you a heads up as to where we're going over the next sort of few weeks through this series, uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning is really the middle section of chapter 6. And then next week is going to be our Remembrance Sunday service. And then in the following week, TJ is going to finish a chapter, which is uh, really just looking at uh, just another issue within the life of the church in Corinth. And then we're going to go back into First Corinthians in early 2020. So let's just take some time to look at our passage. Uh, First Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Um, we're, just, we're going to begin by looking at First Corinthians 6 verses 1 through to 11. Um, because it naturally flows uh, into our passage this morning. So... If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to this. Um, I'm reading from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. There's going to be some physical paper copies for some just in the corner there. So if you want an actual copy of the Bible, you can grab one uh, right now. So um, there's a few people interested. I'm going to move this stand up. But... So people have got confidence just to, to whistle for a Bible. It's great. <laughs> Okay, so, starting in verse 1, uh, Paul says, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one, there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. And in our focus this morning, our passage, verses 9 to 11, Paul writes, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word uh, this morning. Uh, this is a small passage, but it has some deep theological truth uh, for us. Uh, the key word that helps us understand this passage is unrighteousness. This really unlocks what Paul is getting at, what Paul is trying to communicate in light of what was happening within the life of the church uh, in Corinth. And the Greek word for unrighteousness is adikos. Adikos. Can we all say adikos this morning? So it simply means someone who does wrong. Uh, Someone who is unjust. Someone whose life is defined by wrongdoing. By things that they practically do within their own life. And this term unrighteous makes most sense to us when we understand this word in the context of our passage when we examine just the backdrop of all that was written before it, and also just the previous chapter. And there are two key passages that help us understand this term. And the first one is a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verses 9 through to 13. So this is a, a fascinating passage, because it's very similar to what Paul writes in our passage this morning. In terms of the way it's structured, in terms of how he lists things, in terms of its content, Paul is calling for purity within the life of the church. And in calling for purity in the church, he is recognising that there's also a responsibility for the church to directly address the sin issues that exist within the church family. So he's communicating, you guys need to be pure. But he's also saying, if there is impurity within the life of the church, this has to be addressed. And Paul goes into detail. He outlines different examples of sin. In essence, different examples of unrighteousness. These are all just different manifestations of an unrighteous life. So he says, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So that was in chapter 5. This list, as you can see, is very similar to our passage uh, this morning. And through this passage in chapter 5, we understand that when it comes to unrighteousness, we can see more clearly the nature of unrighteousness. It comes in a buffet. There's so many different varieties of unrighteousness. As well as Paul here is underlining the responsibility we have as a church family to deal with it directly. Paul's just hitting the same message again and again. These are all the different kinds of unrighteousness. And we have a responsibility as a church family to deal with this. It's not just for Corinth, it's for Denison Baptist Church as well. Now, the other passage that helps us understand unrighteous as a term 
as 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 8, TJ's passage last week. And you'll notice that the issue of believers taking out civil lawsuits against other believers, it basically just flows right into our passage. It's not like Paul says, now let's move on to the subject of unrighteousness. He just keeps talking and he starts to speak of the reality of sin, the danger of sin, the damage that sin causes through an unrighteous life. So there's a deep, undeniable connection between what Paul writes regarding this particular sin problem in Corinth, one of civil lawsuits, and the reality of unrighteousness and unrighteous people within the local church. So that's really a backdrop for us. That's a context. Hopefully we can understand that unrighteous people evidence that unrighteousness in so many different ways. Paul wants us to see something that is really just crystal clear, I hope, from his writings, not just in this passage, but throughout all that Paul writes. Something we don't just find in Paul's writings, it's found throughout the New Testament as well. Um, It's a very simple and yet a very powerful truth. Unrighteous people produce unrighteous living. In the same way that righteous people produce righteous lives. Who we are inwardly reflects who we are outwardly. So let's take a moment uh, just to examine verses 9 to 10 of our passage and we'll see the connection that Paul makes between an unrighteous person and unrighteous living. So he says, don't you know, verse 9, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now notice, Paul equates the unrighteous with those who do unrighteous acts. Paul wants us to see that the question around what it is that we are, who it is that we are, what it is that we are truly living for, is evident in all of our lives, the internal and the external. This is something we find in Jesus' teaching in terms of this connection between character and actions. So look at what we read in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 to 18. It's not going to be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, just jump to Matthew 7. Jesus is speaking about false prophets, but he wants us to understand that each one of our lives, in many regards, are like trees. We have roots, we display fruit. Fruits that are obvious to others, roots that are often hidden. So Jesus says, speaking of false prophets, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognise them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, But a bad tree produces bad fruit. Very simple. A good tree produces good fruit. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognise them by their fruit. Internal, external. Righteous, righteous heart. Internal righteousness results in righteous acts. An unrighteous heart, an unrighteous life results in unrighteous living. And it's not just here. Uh, We see this kind of teaching in Matthew 25. Uh, Jesus 
speaks of a day of judgment and he divides all of humanity into two groups, the sheep and the goats. Those who know God and those who don't know God, the righteous and the unrighteous. And one of the key indicators that differentiates those in Christ and those outside of Christ is fruit, the fruit of their own lives. This is what Jesus says on the day of judgment. He says to the righteous, come and inherit the kingdom. And the reason he gives for them being able to inherit the kingdom of God is found in what we read in verses 35 through to 36. Jesus says, come and inherit the kingdom for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. So Jesus recognised this internal transformation resulted in external acts of kindness and love. The evidence of a believer's own life is demonstrated here and it points to the fact they really did get it. And you could argue that the writings of John are even more explicit about this point and this is going to be up on the screen for us. 1 John 2 and verses 3 to 6. John, in many regards, is hitting us in the face with a baseball bat in a loving way, of course. But he wants us to see this undeniable truth. He says, this is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands... The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands as a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. So if we say, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus as Lord, I know Jesus as my personal saviour. And yet our lives reflect the opposite of that. We are liars. The truth is not in us. This is what God's word says. It's, it's as plain as day for us. And this flies in the face of so much of what we hear within Christian subculture. You know, I've grown up in a Christian home for many years. Uh, grown up in Christian church. And basically, what can often be communicated is something of as long as you pray a prayer. As long as you pray a prayer, then you're guaranteed to get into heaven um, it would never be communicated as explicit as that but in essence what is often understood was you can go and live your life you can do whatever you want but as long as you prayed that particular prayer at some point then you're going to go to heaven you won't find that anywhere in scripture if you pray and ask Jesus into your life you are surrendering the entirety of your life from that day onwards to him you're taking up your cross you're following him you're saved by faith, but you get to live for Jesus and produce good works. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that our good works save us. We read in Romans, we read in Galatians, we read in the Hebrews. The righteous live not by good works, the righteous live by faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2, which is a passage we looked at, the salvation that we carry within our lives this eternal life, a loving relationship with Jesus is a gift. It's an absolute gift. So that none of us can boast about it. None of us can walk away from here and say, you know, we've achieved great things in terms of salvation. No, we respond in obedience to Christ. We live for him with all that we are. And like the fact that he has saved us and transformed us. The reality is, if we have truly received this gift, 
we will in one sense show this gift off to other people through our good de- through our good deeds, through the righteous fruit of our own lives. It will just become natural to us. If God really has changed us, there'll be evidence of that change outwardly. So how do we get to saved internally to produce good works externally? Well, we get to that place of internal transformation resulting in external fruit when we decide to respond positively to Jesus. We respond to his finished work in the cross for us, his resurrection from the dead, the gift of his Holy Spirit to us we happily receive. Christianity is all about a love relationship with Jesus. So if you love Jesus today, you can stand here this morning and say that God has made you righteous because of this incredible truth that Christ lives in you. Christ in me, Christ in you. When you see evidence of righteousness, it's not you. It's Christ at work within you. God looks at you and he sees you as righteous because of Christ. Christ is in us, but we are also hidden in Christ. I can't fully explain the reality of that, but it is an incredible paradox. Christ in us and us in Christ. God sees us as righteous because we have a loving and a living relationship with him. In God's spirit, your life and my life ought to produce a picture of Jesus to the world. And the opposite is true. If Christ isn't in our lives, we will produce a life reflecting that. Whatever's happening internally will result in external sin. This is why when Paul here speaks of unrighteous, he lists all of these sins. He wants the church in Corinth to be crystal clear about this. It's a buffet. There are so many different varieties of unrighteous living. And they serve as pointers, as indicators to help us see what's really going on within our hearts. So Paul begins his definition of an unrighteous person. And he says that it is according to verse 9. A sexually immoral person. A sexually immoral person. If we just put up the, the passage for us, Carol, it'll just help us to see all the different kinds of sins. So we spent time looking at this before. But this phrase, sexually immoral, or sexual immorality, it's basically a loaded word. It's the Greek word for pornea. It basically means any sexual practice, any sexual activity, internal or external, outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And Paul wants us to see here that this is a salvation issue. When it comes to sexual immorality, it's a salvation issue. The person whose life is characterised by this is unrighteous. They have not fully understood the grace of God. And the fact that grace really does transform. Grace really does change everything. Paul says here, the sexually immoral person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on. And he speaks of the unrighteous as being the idolater. The idolater. It's a person, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, it's a person who is clearly living for someone or something other than Jesus. It's basically the person who will sacrifice everything in their life, or many things in their life, for this particular thing of worship. Their identity is wrapped around this particular idol. To understand idols within the life of a person, often the first thing that comes to mind when you think about them is what it is that they truly worship. So if you think about me, and the first thing you think of 
is something other than Jesus, then there's every chance that's an idol within my life. Paul speaks also of the unrighteous as being the adulterer. The person who is not faithful in their marriage. The person who chooses to pursue sexual or relational intimacy with someone other than their husband or wife. You know, I don't stand here this morning assuming that I know anybody's heart. But let me just say, if you're married, and adultery is something that you think about, or adultery is something that you have pursued, then contemplate the fact that God's Spirit dwells inside you in the midst of all of that. And also contemplate the fact that you may not have God's Spirit dwelling inside you. And that because of this fruit is displayed in your life, it really is an indicator that you've not really got it in the first place. You're not truly saved. So I need to be accurate, as the Bible is accurate. And it's as plain as day for us this morning, in front of us in black and white, in the Word of God, the adulterer will not inherit God's kingdom. Paul goes on, and he says that males who have sex with males, and this phrase includes women who have sex with women, are unrighteous, and they will not inherit God's kingdom. And so it's so important we know it's just we need to be really clear about this in light of our culture. There is not a single positive reference to homosexuality within the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And notice that Paul again reiterates here that it's all about what we do. So we may be tempted to live this kind of lifestyle. We may even feel the pressure of our culture to live this kind of way. But God through his word is crystal clear. People who turn these desires into actions. Men who have sex with men, women who have sex with women, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now these words, when you look at this phrase, it can easily turn to pride on our part or despair. So pride, we can say, we can look at this passage, we can read this and say, well I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not like these people. And in the process when people say this, they basically write the whole gay community off as a group of people who need Jesus. They will look at the gay community and think they're a lost cause. Let me be crystal clear. That would be deeply wrong for us to do that. And it would be deeply sinful. God calls us to love all people, to show mercy and grace. And to believe and expect that God is going to transform people, no matter what sin they might struggle with. So pride is one response to what this passage says. Or despair. Others of you can perhaps identify with the gay community. And so to hear from the Bible that those who are engaged in homosexual practice will not inherit God's kingdom. Well maybe that causes you deep anguish. Because you wanted Christianity and a gay lifestyle to be compatible. And let me offer another way this morning in light of these potential responses, one of pride or one of despair to what, he's, to what Paul writes here. And the response for us this morning is one of conviction rooted in joy. For the prideful person to be in a place where you're deeply convicted at the fact that you have been judging those in the gay community, those who don't yet know Jesus, or no matter what social group they may come from, your conviction lies in the fact that who are you to judge non-believers? And enjoy 
you would have a, a desire within yourself to pursue the gay community out of a deep love for them, to pursue them, to really draw alongside them and to believe that God is going to change their hearts so that their deepest satisfaction may be Jesus. For the despairing person, for you to be in a place where you are convicted of the fact that you have accommodated that way of life to some degree and enjoy understanding that a relationship with Jesus is way more satisfying than any relationship that this world has to offer, homosexual or heterosexual. A relationship with Christ is our greatest, our deepest, the most incredible and amazing satisfaction that we can find within this world. So I know this is pretty heavy for us to look at this morning. We've spent a lot of time on that one particular sin, but we've been very intentional about doing that because this is the one sin within our society it's elevated so much. It's seen as a positive thing. And for us to look at this passage, we need to address it. We need to see that there's something so much better. God offers so much more to us. God calls us not to be proud. He calls us not to experience despair. He calls us to be convicted, to have joy, and to pursue Christ with all that we are. So Paul goes on to talk about thieves. People that steal if our life is characterised by this sin, again, they will not inherit God's kingdom. And Paul wants us to see also that it's a greedy person, the person whose life is characterised and governed by materialism, the person who lives for the pursuit of money and possessions, the person who is running towards the stuff of life at the expense of the needs of, of others around them. It's a person who basically kicks a poor person in the back so that they can get something from it. The greedy person. And it's a drunkard too. The drunkard here is a person whose life is defined by drunkenness. They're addicted. But it's also a person whose life is defined by drugs. It's a person whose life is defined by whatever external source. They need to try and fill that, that emptiness, that despair that they carry within their hearts. It's the verbally abusive, the person whose life is characterised really by shooting people down, the person who sees criticising people really as something that they enjoy. They actually enjoy being abusive and derogatory, and at the same time, there's no desire to change. And finally, it's a swindler, the person who's intentionally trying to rip people off for financial gain, sometimes using the name of Jesus to do that. And I said this a few weeks ago, but... You know, if a member of our church here was taking advantage of someone else for financial gain and they denied it, even though we knew that this was the case, we would in love need to break fellowship with that person and appoint them to First Corinthians chapter 6 and show them the swindler will not inherit God's kingdom. So Paul wants us to see through all of these sins, he wants us to understand through all of these sins that people who practice any of these sins and who do not carry a deep conviction within their hearts, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So think for a moment. Imagine if Denison Baptist Church was the opposite of that list. So instead of this list of sins, imagine DBC was completely contrary to the culture all around us. Because when we look at this list, Corinth... In Denison or Corinth, in Glasgow, Scotland, the West, they are very similar. 
Paul was listing these sins because these were issues within the life of the church. These were problems that existed within the culture in Corinth. And they directly apply to today, to 2019. We can all relate to these sins. We've all had some kind of experience with these sins in terms of what it is we've seen or personally. So my hope and prayer is that instead of us reflecting this list, we would truly reflect the goodness of God. We would truly be a righteous people. So instead of sexual immorality, we would be a pure and holy people. A few weeks' time, we're going to think about fleeing from sexual immorality. Fleeing. You know, you, you flee a fire or a place of danger. For some of us, we're just casually jogging away from sexual immorality. God calls us to flee. To give our absolute all in terms of running away from that particular sin. So instead of sexual immorality, what would it look like for you and I to be a pure and holy people? Instead of idolatry, imagine we were a people who wholeheartedly worshipped Jesus. Our satisfaction didn't come from something in this world. Our satisfaction came from Jesus himself. Instead of adultery, imagine our our church family were characterised by faithful marriages. My hope is that is the case. Instead of homosexual practice, there would be a community of renewed and redeemed people whose greatest satisfaction was in Jesus. Instead of fevery and greed, there was abundant generosity. We would be willing to give away our money and our possessions to bless other people, both believers and non-believers. Instead of drunkenness, sobriety, a desire to be the whole person for all of Jesus. Instead of verbal abuse, instead of shooting people down, building people up, encouraging people for the kingdom of God. Instead of swindling, coming across that everything's okay, but really trying to to steal from other people. There would be integrity. There would just be a fullness of character within the life of each one of us. The danger for us as we think of these sins and as we think of the, the response that we can make is that we can say to ourselves, well, I need to, to now go and do. I need to go and do all these good things to then inherit the kingdom of God. I need to be pure. I need to wholeheartedly worship Jesus. I need to find deep satisfaction in him. I need to be faithful. I need to be generous. I need to be sober. I need to be an encourager. I need to be a man or a woman of integrity. To which Paul would respond to that. No. You know, these good deeds that you do, or these good deeds that you have the potential to do if you're in Christ, are really the fruit of a deeper root. And the deeper root is verse 11, the final verse of our passage. Paul says, past tense, some of you used to be like this. In other words, this list of sins are no longer who you are. Instead, Paul says next, but you are washed you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So for us to be more like Jesus, we don't focus on our good or bad behaviour, we focus on Jesus as the author of our faith, as the finisher of our faith, as the one who can enable us to live wholeheartedly for him. So we're called to embrace the reality, to embrace this root that you have been washed Your sins have been washed away. You're brand new. 
in Christ. Completely clean. Our sins have been completely washed away. Is that good news? Are we happy with that truth? We have been sanctified. God has and God is making us more and more like Jesus. Hopefully the Mark Morris of today is different from the Mark Morris of yesterday. And the Mark Morris of today is different from the Mark Morris of tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. We're becoming more and more like Christ. But it's past tense again. Paul was really saying this is a guarantee. This is a promise. You will be sanctified. And we're called to embrace the root that you and I have been justified. God looks upon us. He sees Jesus. Our sins are no more. We no longer face eternal wrath. We have a love relationship with God the Father. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. God looks at us and he sees Christ. So we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. I would encourage you, if if you would like to, to receive God's salvation gift for the first time, then there's space here at the front. If you would like to receive this gift, then during our time of worship, to respond in faith, to know with all that you are that you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. Or maybe you need prayer for something you're facing in your life this morning. Again, come forward. We would count it a privilege to pray for you. Maybe it's an illness and you want prayer for healing. Maybe it's a circumstance you're just so overwhelmed by what it is you're facing. You need just clarity. You need peace in your heart. Then come forward, receive prayer. And I do believe that God will change your perspective on that situation. He may not change the situation itself, but he will change your perspective and he will give you strength to walk forward in faith for him. So there's opportunity for us to respond during this time of worship. But let's just remember, as I really want us to, to understand this morning, just how serious sin is. And just, just how much Jesus went to rescue us from that sin. Um, I think we can just so easily take it for granted. We can just, just do all the, the usual Christian stuff. Um, pray the prayers, sing the songs, read the passages, and we don't fully contemplate and understand within our hearts the reality of what Jesus did for us. He went so far to rescue us so that we are free from sin. Jesus said to the unfaithful woman, go and sin no more. He says it to each one of us today. Go and sin no more. Let go of that list and pursue a list of righteousness. May that be true for each one of us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. And Lord, we do thank you that we can respond to this passage in faith. And Lord, we know that it's a a difficult passage for us to look at. But Lord, we pray that, that we would not just be deeply convicted, we would also carry joy within our hearts. And the joy would be rooted in the fact that you love us. Lord, help us to understand both head and heart that you truly do love us and that you're with us in every moment of life, in the mountaintop moments, in the valley moments, in the seasons of blessing, in the seasons of hardship. Help us to know, Lord, that you are faithful. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.